And uh, one of the questions that did come up is I showed some pictures of some large guys. I just want to tell you, and these are the bones of the pictures that I showed. I just want to tell you that um, there's only one source that is correct information, and that source is the Bible. <laughs> um, but I will tell you that I still run from a lot of different sources. This was a Christian source that, that, that did this. So it was a Christian source that said, oh, this is there. But some people say, well, I wonder if it's, you know, it's, um, it's um, what is it, computer, what do you call it? Photoshopped. I wonder if it's Photoshopped. So I'd be really sad if it was, um, because it is a Christian source underneath that study. And then there's another one too that said, oh, it might have been Photoshopped. So this is the point. I will, when I talk about the Bible, I say fact, period. If I show a picture or show other sources or different things like this, it's like, oh, you know, these are said, but you know, maybe I should give more information in regards to those. So, but quite frankly, whether they're Photoshopped um, or not, whether they're there or whether they're not, uh, the point was that they were big dudes, and Goliath was a big dude, and they talked to him as if they're big dudes. You know, that's what it, that's what it was. So um, that's, that was the point, and we know that is fact, and the reason why we know it's fact is because the Bible says so. So the other question that came up about the Nephilim is, well, hold on a second, they were before Noah. How did they become after Noah? Didn't God just wipe them all out? That's a good question, but where are you going to get the answer? Does the Bible say it? And the way that I interpret it is that if the Bible says it, it is true. And then I'm like, anything else is just is void in my mind. So I just want to read you the passage. Genesis 6, 1. When men began to increase in numbers and the earth and the daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw the daughters of men were beautiful and married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is mortal. His days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on earth in those days. This is before Noah. The Nephilim's on earth before Noah and also afterwards. Now, all of a sudden, I've got an answer. They're there. Well, how did they get there? Well, you, you can try to speculate. You can try to find. You can try to understand. But if the Bible says they were there before and they were there after, that's just what I'm going to consistently preach because that's the way that I interpret the Bible. That's the way I, 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 I know the Bible. So they were there afterwards. So there's some other scripture that kind of brings up some insinuations that they were there afterwards as well. Numbers 13, this is the one we talked about. We saw the Nephilim there, the descendants of Anak, came from the Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes and looked the same to them. So again, scripture is out there. We saw the Nephilim there, the descendants of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. That's just let you know, that's just an ad in Scripture. They're just trying to give you an explanation of what's going on. But again, some people say, well, they weren't there. They just thought that they were there, you know. But we can interpret that the way that we look. I still interpret it from Genesis. So I'll interpret it again in Numbers, say, oh, yeah, they were there. Joshua eleven twenty one. All that time Joshua went to destroy the, Anak, the Anakites, from the hill country, from Hebron, and Debar, and Anab, and from the hill country of Judah, and from the hill country of Israel. And Joshua destroyed, totally destroyed them and their own towns. So again, he's going in there and he's wiping off a person, not a tribe, and it's the Anakites, which the Anakites is connected to the Nephilim. So there's another little piece that it's talking about. Well, it should be there. First Samuel 17, a champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out to the Philistine camp. 
he was nine feet tall. You know, or they making him nine feet tall back then and not then? Is he a Nephilim? Is he not a Nephilim? He was a bad guy from the Philistines. You know, another piece that it's talking about. And then Jude 1.6 says, this is the New Testament, the angels who did not keep their position of authority but abandoned their own home. What does that sound like? <laughs> the angels abandoned their own home. These he had kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. People are thinking that's connected with the Nephilim as well, that they were bound. So what, what is the answer? Well, there's only two explanations of how the Nephilim were after Noah, if we believe that that took place. Um, one would be that he was, um, that the bloodline came through one of the daughter-in-laws um, to, um, to Noah's sons. So, you know, is it that? I don't know. The other explanation, if, it's, if it is there, is that the, um, the demons still came down and had relations with ladies afterwards, had relationships with human ladies afterwards, but on a, a lighter scale. So, what's the answer? I lean more towards the answer that went through the bloodline, you know, um, of the daughter-in-laws. I don't know, but I won't say the Nephilim weren't there if the Bible says the Nephilim were there before and after. <laughs> so, but you can still disagree with me. I just have to say what, you know, the only source that I know is fact, and that would definitely be, definitely be the Bible. So, that was the piece of that. So, any questions? All right. <laughs> Good. All right, let's talk about tribes of Israel. Let's go to the next slide. Twelve tribes of Israel. After they conquered the land, these were the tribes of Israel. But did they conquer all this land? So this is the land that they, they, they conquered, they fought battles in. This is the land where they set up the twelve tribes of Israel. But did they conquer all of it? And the answer is no. Let's look at the next one. All right, this is the land that they conquered, and then they put the 12 tribes of Israel on, and you see Dan's over here. Well, this land right here is actually not completely and entirely conquered. So there are still people that were living in these areas that were, not necess- that were Canaanites, that were not, were not Israelites. And so they had some problems that were coming from this area here. In fact, the, town, the, uh, the tribe of Dan actually even got moved up there because they even got ran out of their area. So how do we know that? Um, Judges 1, 27, 33 um, explains this, and there's a whole bunch of really big words and names, but I'm just going to read the first part of it so you get the point. But Manasseh did not drive out the people of Bethshan and Tanek, or Dor, or Ebliam, or Megiddo, or the surrounding settlements, for the Canaanites were determined to live in the land. So you're getting this in Judges explaining. When Israel came strong, they pressed the Canaanites into forced, them labor, into forced labor, but never drove them out completely. So, and then it's going to go a whole bunch of more names. Nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites living in Gazar. So there's an explanation that these people are still there, and that is in, um, in the book um, of Judges. So I will tell you the land was taken over by Israel by the leadership of Joshua, but there was still Canaanites in the land. And as there's Canaanites in the land, I will tell you that Joshua was concerned about the people. <laughs> and uh, he said, all right, Canaanites are still in the land. You worship what? The king of kings, the, worship, the Lord of lords, the one that gave you the law, the one that you worship in their tabernacle. Do not turn from God and worship their gods as you continue to conquer and continue to move through the land. So Joshua 
does literally, you know, give them a sermon. And uh, on his sermon, he says, trust the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and worship absolutely no other gods before him. Judges 2, then the sons of Israel did evil in the, oh, actually, no, that's not the right verse. I missed a verse. Serve the followers and serve the gods. Oh, here's his sermon. Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods of your forefathers. Worship beyond the river and in Egypt. And serve the Lord. The next slide. If serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourself this day whom you serve, whether the gods of your forefathers serve beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whom you serve and whom are you living with. But as for me and my house, I will serve the Lord. See, Joshua is a little concerned. Can't you tell in the passage that he's going to say, you're going to have people next to you. Do not serve their gods. And do you know what the people said? Oh, yeah, absolutely, Joshua. Don't worry. We won't serve the gods. We won't take them. No, no, absolutely. God's king of kings, Lord of lords. We're going to tell you absolutely everything we can do because the book of Judges is going to be one happy book because we're going to move from Joshua to Judges. And do you know what they're going to do? They're going to serve God. <laughs> I will tell you that they had Joshua's funeral, and I don't even think they had their funeral clothes off before they, Judges 2, then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served Baals. <laughs> as soon as Joshua was dead, what took place. They went immediately to the Canaanite gods. Now I just want to mention, you know, what is the god of Baal? The word Baal means Lord, and there's a couple different ends of, of Baal. The, the El chief of Baal is Baal's son, and Asherah's fertility is, the, is, is, Baal's, is Baal's sister-in-law. And see what happens, they worship the son of Baal, but it's really a form of, um, what's the word, um, of blessing. The Baal gives them blessing, and blessing in regards, to, um, in regards to wealth, blessing in regards to prosperity, blessing in regards to crops, blessing in regards to rain when it was supposed to take place, blessing in regards to good weather. So Baal was the god over all of that, and so they worshiped him even as the sun, or worshiped the sun as he is the chief god um, of Baal. So when you look at even Elijah that comes in there and says, you know, it hasn't rained for two years. You pray to God of Baal that rain will come. And then he starts laughing at him. Well, this is a pretty rough statement because the God of Baal provides the rain. The God of Baal provides the produce. And they will slash themselves. They will cut themselves. They will do sacrifices to make sure that the rain comes when it's supposed to, make sure the crops come as they're supposed to, make sure blessing comes. That's the God of Baal. So when Elijah's saying, hey, ask Baal to come and put your rain down, and then he starts to make fun of him. Is your God of Baal, you know, taking a dump? I mean, he says those words in scripture. Where is he? I don't see him. And, and then all of a sudden, Elijah shows up and says, all right, let God come. And all of a sudden, when God came, he took the altar and just disintegrated, and, and the rain came. So if you look at that story, do you see again, it's the same as Moses' story? It's a slam on God's <laughs> That's what it is. It's God fighting God. It's a slam on them because they're the God of, Baal's the God of rain, produce. Baal is the God of prosperity. He's going to give them if we are obedient to it. And so that is what's taking place. So the people automatically went right to God. So the book um, of Judges, is, or right to Baal. So the book of Judges is um, broken up into, I'll just say, chapters 1 through 16, um, God brings judges to bring the people back. They instantly go worship Baal, 
and then it's instantly go worship Baal, something happens. Disobedience, disaster, and deliverance. Now, what happens? Disobedience, disaster, deliverance. God saves them by doing what? He brings a judge. The judge delivers them. And they're like, okay, we're now understanding the Ten Commandments, we're worshiping God, and then all of a sudden the judge dies. What happens? The same thing that happened with Joshua. <laughs> they don't even have their funeral clothes off. They go back to worship other gods. And God's like, okay, disaster, or d- disobedience, disaster, deliverance. And they go through the entire book for or first 16 chapters of this consistent cycle, and they don't learn. The last verse in Judges explain the entire book. And the last verse of Judges says, everybody did what was right in their own eyes. And judges came to say, stop doing what is right in your own eyes. We have a king of kings. We have a lord of lords. It's not about relativism. Do what is right, what you think is right. And what you think is wrong, do what is wrong. Do what God says. And so we get that 15, uh, not, not 15 judges, but 13 judges total that will consistently come and redeem them through cycles of disobedience, disaster, deliverance, disobedience, disaster, deliverance, all the way through the book. And then the last couple chapters, which I'm going to focus a lot on, is a story about when there was no king in Israel, this is what is going to take place. And I want to definitely anchor into that story. But let's just look at chapters 1 through 16. Here is our judges um, that are there. And this is the list of our judges. Athiel, Ulad, uh, Shimgar, all these are judges, and these are the years of the, the amount that they served. 40 years, 80 years. We do not know how long Shemgar lasted. Deborah, 40 years. Gideon, 40 years. All the way through six years, 22, 23 years, 22 years. You have, I put Eli and Samuel there. Um, they're not judges, they're priests, but they're the ones that are taking control of beating, getting people that are back on track in, in worshiping God. But it really stops um, at Samson. So each of these have their own stories. And that's what chapters 1 through 16 is, is people step away, disaster takes place, deliverance happens. And I just want to focus on probably just the first four of these judges. And I just want to go through them real fast. And people are going to say, do you mean you're not going to talk about Samson? I'm not. I'm not going to talk about Samson. How do you do judges in the book of Samson? Talk about judges and not talk about Samson? Well, read his story. They're phenomenal stories. But this is how it works. So Othniel, was a nephew of Caleb. He delivered Israel after eight years of bondage in the king of, uh, from king of Mesopotamia. Delivered them, set them free, then they followed him. Ehud, he was another um, um, person that took uh, Ethiel's place. Is it? Yeah, Othiel, Othiel's place. As he took Othiel's place, what, did he ta- what happened there? He was um, the king of Moab, completely put them in bondage for 18 years. And then he ended up, there's a fast story about being a left-handed guy and sticking a guy and the king in the belly and those things. So he ended up delivering them from the king of Moab, and then they were underneath him. Shamgar, he was a person that just has one little verse. This is what we know about Shamgar, Judges 3.31. After him came Shamgar, the son of Anath, that struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. That's all we know about Shamgar. We don't know anything about Shamgar besides that. Just he was a judge that came in, delivered the people, and we don't know how long he was there at all. He just came and delivered the people and set and set them free. Deborah um, was um, Israel was under the control of the Canaanites for twenty years, and as a control of the Canaanites, they had nine hundred 
chariots, soldiers, and Deborah said to Anak, says, hey, we're going to go to battle with them, a battle that they were completely outnumbered. And they went into the Valley of Jezreel, which is the Battle of Armageddon, the place of Armageddon. And the war took place there, again delivering Israel from the hands of the Canaanites. Gideon, the Midianites, were on him, were on Israel, so bad that they were hiding in caves. And as they're hiding in caves, they um, couldn't get out to produce even a crop. Because if they even produced a crop, they would get wiped out. So they were starving, they were lonely, they were lost, they were in complete hiding with Midianites because they're just way too outnumbered. So, you know, they reject God, disobedience, disaster has taken place, disaster has taken place for eight years, and then God calls on a judge. Who does he call? He calls Gideon. Gideon says, there's no way I can do this. Have you seen the numbers of the people, the Midianites? There's no way I can compile Israel to go, to go fight them. Uh, but of course, God says, you know, I am with you. And he's like, Gideon's like, I'm just doing these stories fast. Gideon's like, you're with me. Yeah, can you prove it? <laughs> so he puts a fleece out and says, God, I want you to, I want it to um, rain and have a dry fleece. And that will give me an explanation that you're behind me. So sure enough, it rains, the dew on the ground. It doesn't rain, there's dew on the ground. And the fleece is completely dry. And then he twists it and says, well, hold a second, I want there to be dew in the fleece, and I want there to be no dry on the ground, or completely dry on the ground. And then he wakes up the next morning, and what does he do? He squeezes out the fleece and says, God wants me to attack all these people with all these farmers, and there is no way in the world I'd have the numbers to do this. But Gideon says, God is on my side. So what does he do? He riles up. God is going to deliver us. Yes, we've disobeyed. We're a disaster, but He's going to deliver us. All we need to do is go to war. People were a little bit hesitant with Gideon. They said, have you seen the army of the Midianites? They are way too large to attack. But sure enough, they gather the army. And after they gather the army, Gideon looks at God and says, all right, God, we're ready to go. I know we're way outnumbered, but I know we will walk with your hand. And I'm looking at it. They are kind of weak, but they are, might have some strength and muscle in them. And what does God say? God says, great, Gideon. I'm so glad you're ready to go. But what I want you to do first is I want you to turn around to your army and I want to say, tell them, anybody who's afraid, tell them to go home. And if I was Gideon, I would say, <laughs> God, you wanted me to attack the Midianites. You want me to wipe them out. God, I have to have people. And if I tell them that, I'm going to lose a lot of people. God says, I know, just do it. So he tells everybody, hey, if you want to leave, go home. What happens? <laughs> His army just splits. Tens of thousands of people step away, and he just lost his army. And then he looks at God and says, great, God, now look what you did. God's like, now things are starting to look good. Let's go to war. So they go down to the creek. When they go down to the creek, God says, I'm going to do another little filter system. Everybody gets a drink. Some drink like dogs, and some put it in their hands, and they cuff it, and they drink it. And then he tells Gideon, hey, uh, those who drink like dogs, why don't you send them home as well? Gideon's like, (laughs) Uh, who drunk like dogs? I, I mean, how many people are we going to lose? But then he tells everybody, if you drunk like dogs, I mean, put your face down, you need to go home. And they all go home, and he only has 300 soldiers. And then as he has 300 soldiers, he said, God, I know that you're king of kings, lord of lords, but how are you going to deliver us with 300 soldiers? You see what God is doing? The same thing he did with Joshua. I am the one that's going to win your war, not your power, not your strength. So, 300 soldiers are there. Gideon continues to say, we've got to move forward. We've got to press and attack. So sure enough, they look um, down into the valley, the Jezreel Valley, and they see the Midianites there. And the comment is that the camels 
are hundreds of thousands. I mean, multitudes of multitudes of camels. Like people we can't even see. It's just like, we can't do this. But they're told to God that they have to. So what happens? They split 100 to the north, 100 to the south, 100 to the east, and they surround them with 100 people. And they did it in the middle of the night. And as they surrounded them with uh, 300 people, 100, 100, and 100, as they surrounded them, um, they were going to yell a war cry to know that they were going to tell them they were under attack. So what they were going to do is they were going to take their torches and they can break the lamps over their torches so they can see their torch. And they were going to scream and yell and say, we're fighting you. I mean, that's what they're practically saying. So sure enough, 100, 100, 100, at their call of Gideon, boom, all the, the, um, the clay things, torches went up. They started screaming. And what did the Midianites do? They said, oh my goodness, we're under attack. And I'll tell you that half of them looked out there and what did they see? Go to the south, go to the east. Who's attacking us? And they went to the south, they went to the east and they got the report. What was the report? We're being attacked by 300 men. <laughs> so half of the crew said 300 soldiers. All right, let's wipe them out. The other half of the crew said, absolutely not. We're not being attacked by 300 men. We're being attacked by God. We're not, I can't attack those people. And others are saying, no, we're an attack by 300 men. And all of a sudden, there's a civil war that just took place right inside of the 300 that were, that were there. And they just completely destroyed each other, annihilated each other. And then God says to the 300 men, go clean up the mess <laughs> and, and wipes it out. Again, completely delivers um, uh, Israel from the Midianite army. So these are stories after stories of the judges bringing deliverance consistently for Israel. And that is chapters 1 through 16. That is why the book is called Judges, because these judges were the ones that were implementing it. But what about chapters 17 through 21? Chapter 17 through 21 gives an account of what it looks like when there was no king. And I'm going to get very specific on this story, more specific than the other stories. This is what it looks like when there is no king. And I will tell you that it's going to look ugly. Judges 19, 1 through 3 says, In those days Israel had no king. Now a Levite who lived in a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim took a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. But she was unfaithful to him. She left him and went back to her father's house in Bethlehem, Judah. After she had been there for four months, her husband went to her and persuaded her to return. He had with him his servant and two donkeys. She took him into his father's house, and when her father saw him, he gladly welcomed him. So here you have somebody from Ephraim, had a concubine that was from Judah, and the concubine was cheated, and then she left and went to her, fa- her father, and um, that was Ephraim, into Benjamin. Was it Benjamin? Who was Benjamin? Bethlehem into Bethlehem. When we went to Bethlehem, he goes, some reason he said, I'm going to go back after my concubine because she was unfaithful to me, but maybe he got sad. Maybe he wanted her. Maybe he needed her again. He was unfaithful, so he went down there to get the woman, to get the concubine back. Well, the father, it would be father-in-law, wasn't happy that this person was coming and getting his concubine back. So what the father-in-law did is the father-in-law says, come into my house, according to this verse, come into my house. And as he come into my house, let's just drink let's relax. So what did the father-in-law do? He started drinking. He gave his son-in-law, it's a concubine, so I can't explain all that, but it's not necessarily a son-in-law, gave his son-in-law alcohol as well, and then they got drunk. And then 
and then they woke up in the morning, but when they woke up in the morning, they didn't give up, get up at the crack of dawn. They had a hangover. So in the morning, they woke up about noon, a little later. And the father-in-law liked that because he can't leave in the middle of the day. So sure enough, what he did the next day, let's just drink, let's just relax. He did not want his daughter to go back with him. So what did they do? They drank again. They got a hangover. They did not go the next day. And this consistently happened with the father-in-law and the son-in-law as he's trying to get his, I'm just going to say concubine, concubine back until the son-in-law just got really frustrated. Son-in-law says, forget this. We got to go. So he gets drunk the night before. He wakes up with a hangover. It's about noon. He says, we're leaving anyway. It's not necessarily safe to leave anyway <laughs> in, the middle of, in the middle of the afternoon because these are not your tribes. These are not your areas. This is not your place. So they end up leaving anyway. And when they left anyway, they go to the town of Ephraim. Make sure I got this right. They go to the town of Ephraim. Judges 19.22, while, while they were enjoying themselves, some of the wicked, oh, oh I'm sorry, that's, that's, that's wrong. I'm doing the two different things. The Levite went from, went to Ephraim, grabbed the concubine in Bethlehem, they go to Gibeah, or, um, Gibeah um, in Benjamin, that's where they end up going, to Gibeah in Benjamin. So hopefully you can track this story. They go to Gibeah. Now when they're in Gibeah, they're going to head back to Ephraim. And when they're heading back to Ephraim, they stop in the city of Benjamin. Now when they stop in the city of Benjamin, the laws of hospitality is that people are supposed to take visitors in. That's just the law of hospitality. So what happens is when you go to a different place, and you're a visitor, and you go, say, to the town of Benjamin, and you're walking through, you go to where a well is at. And when you go to where a well is at, or a place where a community walks in, somebody is supposed to automatically just pick you up and take you, take you in. So what does he do? It's late at night, he comes there, and he's waiting for somebody to pick him up, take him in, somebody to show him hospitality. Nobody shows him hospitality. They keep on walking by him and walking by him and walking by him until one person shows him hospitality, and this person is somebody who is from Ephraim. And he goes, ah, I used to live in Ephraim. Now I live in Benjamin. I will take you. And so he takes him into the house. And as he takes him into the house, they do the same thing that the father-in-law does. Hey, let's drink and let's have joy. And in those things. So they started drinking. They started having joy. Then all of a sudden, alongside the house, a whole bunch of Benjamites, rough people, start showing up. Judges 19, while they're enjoying themselves, some of the wicked men of the city surrounded the house Pounding on the door, they shouted to the old man who owned the house, bring out the man who came to the house so we can have sex with him. So here this person is showing hospitality with his friend from Ephraim, and then all of a sudden a mob shows up and says, bring that man out, we want to have sex with him. No one, it comes to sex, this is not enjoyable sex. What this is, is this is mastery sex, you know, with a man. It's supposed to degrade him. It's supposed to show him a lesson. It's supposed to show him who's in charge. So this guy is supposed to come out, and they were going to abuse him, and the whole town will be able to see. And as the whole town is able to see, you know what's going to take place? The town will look at it and say, this is what happens to people that walk into our tribe or into our country that are not supposed to be here. So they demanded he come out. But, of course, the person that was giving him the guest, the person from Ephraim was giving the guest, he says, please don't do this. This is not somebody that you want to do it to. He's my responsibility. Do not do this. And he started fighting with the crowd. 
fighting with the crowd means arguing with the crowd. And as they're arguing, the person from Ephraim knew he had to negotiate. So he says, okay, fine. I won't go out there and have, you can have sex with me, but what I'll do is I'll send you out my concubine. And you can have sex with my concubine. It's a great idea. Everybody did it right in their own eyes. Uh, we got to do something that's got to save me. I got to do what's right in my own eyes. I'll send you my concubine. So then they sent the concubine out to the mob. And when they sent the concubine out to the mob, what did the mob do with her? Um, this is what the mob did. Judges 19.25. But the men would not listen to him, so the man took his concubine and sent her outside to them, and they, I'm not even going to say it, what they did. But they did it all night, and they did it until she was completely, until she was dead. And as they did, it was dead, they pulled her in the morning, they pulled her into the house, and the individual from Ephraim looked at the lady and says, what has this world come to? Completely angry, completely mad, completely frustrated, saying we are completely messed up people. Does anybody ever care anymore about anything? So he did what he thought was right. Justice has to take place, and if justice has to take place, I need to tell all the tribes of Israel what the tribe of Benjamin has done to this lady, to my concubine. So what I'll do is I'll write them a letter. So he ends up writing all the 11 tribes a letter, but he wants to get their attention. So as he wants to get their attention, he does what is right in his own eyes, and he takes the concubine's body, and he starts cutting it up. And he cuts the arm off, he cuts the foot off, cuts the head off, and then he puts it in a bag, and then he mails it to all the 11 tribes of Israel. And he mails it to all 11 tribes of Israel. Why did he do that? Because he wants justice to take place for his concubine that was completely destroyed by this mob of Benjamin. So after he mails it out, what do you think the 11 tribes are going to do? 11 tribes get ticked, asking the question, what in the world is this world coming to? This world is coming to cruelty. This world is wrong. This world is messed up. We've got to do something. Justice had to take place. So all the 11 tribes of Israel joined up, ready to go to war with the tribe of Benjamin to have justice for that lady that was raped. So after they all came up, they said, all right, Benjamin, you're under attack. I want you to hand over the people that did this, and if you don't hand the people over, then we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna come after you and send all tri 11 tribes against you. So what does Benjamin do? Benjamin did what was right in their own eyes, and they said, no, <laughs> we're not going to hand those people over. We're going to stand behind those people, and if you want to attack us, attack us. 11 of the tribes of Israel went after Benjamin. 11 of the tribes, mob of people, went after Benjamin, and what took place? Tens upon tens upon tens of thousands of people died. But guess who won? Benjamin won. They pulled all, the tribe of Benjamin won. They pulled all the 11 tribes back. Well, the next day, after they licked their wounds, they say, this is not justice, so they attack again. And then what happens? Benjamin, the one tribe, wins against 11 again and pulls all the 11, um, all 11 back. And then they go the third day and says, okay, we, they're mad now. They're completely angry, ready to destroy over the blood that has taken place and over the people that they lost and over the injustice that's been done. So what takes place? They go in the third time. And then we go in the third time. They do an early retreat. It's kind of a Braveheart move. They do an early retreat, and then the soldiers come in behind them. And then after the soldiers come in behind him, they start wiping out the soldiers of Benjamin. 
And as they wiped out, surrounded them, 600 of the guys, soldiers, just fled. Said, whoa, we're, we're, we're cornered, we're, we're not going to make it. So they just fled into the wilderness. And as they fled into the wilderness, I will tell you that all the 11 tribes of Israel just had enough of what, Benjamite, of what the Benjamites did. So they went into the city and they started killing. And they started killing. But before they killed, they made a vow. And this is the vow that they made. Judges 21.1 says, The men of Israel, this is before they go in, the men of Israel had taken an oath at Mizpah. Not one of us will ever give daughters to the Mary and to the Benjamites. Period. But the bloodthirst was on their tongue, and so they start continue to go to war. After they made the vow, they started to continue to kill and continue to kill. And they killed every woman. They killed every children. They killed every Benjamite's animal. They went to every single city and wiped out entire tribe um, of Benjamin because of their anger, their frustration, and, and their bloodthirstiness. So after they wiped out the tribe, they looked at each other, and what do you think they said? Oh, crap. You're right. <laughs> There's 12 tribes of Israel, and we just killed an entire tribe. These are God's tribes of Israel, and these tribes are written on the New Jerusalem that comes down. There's 12 apostles these are God's tribe. There's no longer 12 tribes of Israel. There's actually now 11 tribes of Israel. So what are they going to do? The first thing that they should do is they should probably consult God, you know, for wisdom. But they don't. They do what is right in their own eyes. And they said, who, find them, anybody, who is alive from the tribe of Benjamin? We just annihilated all the cities. Who's alive? And do you know what they found? They found 600 people alive in the wilderness. It was those soldiers that ran up there. So what took place? They ran up there and they got them and they pulled them down here and they said, um, <laughs> we need you. Why? Because we destroyed the entire tribe of Benjamin and that's completely and entirely against God and therefore since it's completely and entirely against God wiping out a tribe, we need you to produce a tribe and to continue the line of Benjamin going. And uh, and then they looked at them and they said, well, we, we have a problem. And they said, well, what's the problem? He says, well, you have 600 men and you have no women. So you have a tribe of Benjamin with 600 men, but, you know, how are you going to continue this tribe, continue to go with only 600 men? You need to do what? You need to find ladies. And what did we do with all the ladies? You ended up killing them all. So as they ended up killing them all, I got to see where my, because I'm jumping off some verses here. As he ended up killing them all, they said, where are we going to find our ladies? They started asking the question, well, who was not at war with the Benjamites? Who did not attack the Benjamites? Is there anybody here that has not attacked the Benjamites? Because we need to find some ladies for these Benjamites if they're going to continue the tribe. And they said, oh, wait a second, where's Gabish Gilead? The Gabish Gilead people actually did not attack the Benjamites when all the 11 tribes came together. So what they thought about, well, what we can do is that since their blood is not on our hands and they're not against the Benjamites, we can go to Jabesh Gilead and we can get women from them for the people in the tribe of Benjamin so they can continue the tribe of Benjamin to continue to go. So what did they do? They did, they didn't consult God, they did what was right in their own eyes. They went to Gabesh Gilead, and when they went to Gabesh Gilead, they killed all the men. They killed all the women. They killed all the children, and they kept all the virgins. 
They said, we've got to try this. We've got to start a tribe. You know, this is a good story. This is, read your Bible. It gets a little interesting, doesn't it? So they ended up killing everybody from Jabesh Gilead, and they got a whole bunch of virgins, and they counted them at 500 people. And 500 virgins to give to the 600 guys. So they take the 500 virgins, and they're going to take them to the 600 guys of Benjamin because they want to build that tribe up again. And as they're doing that, they said, oh, no, we got another problem. And what was the other problem? The other problem is we made a vow in Mizpah that none of us will give our daughters away in marriage. If we kill the dads, the husbands, the women, the children, and keep the virgin girls, we are now their parents, and we made a vow for the Lord that we cannot give them to Benjamin. So they didn't consult God what they do. They did what was right in their own eyes to try to figure this out. They said, well, what we'll do is we won't give those girls to them. What we'll do is we'll let those girls dance. This is a brilliant idea. We'll let these girls dance. And as they are dancing, the 600 guys can sit in the brush. And as the 600 guys can sit in the brush, they can run and snatch the 500. And what that means is it means that we did not give them away they were snatched away. They're trying to keep their law correct and ordered. So sure enough, the 500 ladies, virgins, started dancing. And as they were dancing, um, the 600 guys stole them. If you think of the mob, 500 ladies, 600 guys, 100 people didn't get guys. What did that dance really look like once those guys started coming in? I would tell you, it probably looked pretty aggressive, pretty mean, lots of fights, uh, lots probably of blood, and then they grabbed their virgin ladies, and they picked them up practically, and they threw them over their shoulders, and they packed the wives, or their new wives that they just took, that they didn't give away, but the new wives that they took, back to what? To all their rubbled cities of Benjamin. Packing their wives, getting ready to go, we've got to start this tribe of Benjamin again, here's my woman, here's my burnt house, here is my family that's been killed. Here's my children that's been killed, but I got a new one on here, and I'm going to start again to get the tribe of Benjamin. And then the book of Judges stops. <laughs> it's almost like the author was like, I've had enough of this. And then he writes one verse, and as he writes one verse, what's the verse? Judges 21. In those days there was no king in Israel Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, if you really look at that story, you can see people believe that they were doing what is right in their own eyes. If you looked at the person, I mean, who has a moral compass? If you, if you, if you looked at the, the guy from Ephraim and went back for his concubine, I mean, he's doing what is right in his own eyes. But when he gave his concubine to the soldiers, did he do what was right? Of course he did what was right in his own eyes. The reason why is because it wasn't his fault he was in the situation in the first place. Because if she didn't leave, then he, we wouldn't have been in that situation. So it's her fault, so she should go out instead. So he makes a decision, and he sends her out. Well, you look at Benjamin and say, Benjamin is, the, city, the tribe of Benjamin is horrible. Why would you do such a thing like that? Benjamin wanted to make a statement to everybody that we can't have visitors just walking in, and he was just going to be used as a statement. So Benjamin decided to do what was right in their own eyes. If you go through that story all the way through, do you know what you're going to see? You're going to see people making decisions without a God, very similar to what we do in this world as well. All the way from 
abortion. We can do what's right in our own eyes, all the way from the gay marriages. We don't need a God. We can do what is right in our own eyes. If it works for us, what is the book of Judges for? The book of Judges is for do what is right in your own eyes, I dare you. Because the gods that you worship will be the gods that will judge you. The behavior that you think you have freedom to make will be the behavior that will come back and curse you and judge you. The darkest time of Israel was in the book of Judges, and I just gave you a taste of it. And it's the darkest time in Israel because people just did exactly what they wanted. And as a result, those are the stories that we're getting. But the other thing about the book of Judges is that you have to ask the question, people that messed up, why would God want anything to do with us? Absolutely anything to do with us. We're messed up here, but you look at them, they're so messed up. Why would God have anything to do with us? Why would he even be faithful to us? There's one more story that's found in the book of Judges, and I'm going to have to fly through this story, but it's not titled under the book of Judges. It's titled under the book of Ruth. Ruth 1 says, in, those, in the days when the judges ruled. So this story is, I'm just going to tell you real fast, it's going to be a little romance, a little romance story. When did Ruth happen? When all this other garbage was taking place. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while <coughs> in the country of Moab. Now, the country of Moab, I don't have a map. I wish I could. Do I have a map up there? There's a, there's a map. Moab is right over here. So this is the heart of Israel. Here is Jerusalem. Here is Moab. A famine took place in the land. They went over here. And as they went over here, um, Naomi had two sons and a husband. And as they had two sons and a husband, the husband passed away in Moab. The two sons passed away. And as Naomi was her name, as Naomi was her name, she um, was going to go back to her homeland. And the reason why she's going to go back to her homeland is because all that she had there was gone. So she talked to her daughter-in-laws. And when she talked to her daughter-in-laws and says, I'm going to go, Ruth was a daughter-in-law that says, where you go, I go. Where you lodge, I lodge. Your God will be my God and your people will be my people. And Ruth made a commitment and she made a commitment to go back over here to, um, to Ephraim, Bethlehem. And when she went back to Ephraim into Bethlehem, I will tell you the love story took place in the sense that she was out doing her job, doing her task. Um, and as she was doing her task, she had a boss. And this boss was named Boaz. He was the one that was in charge of her. And uh, Ruth's reputation got around really, really fast in the sense that she was so committed to her mother-in-law that she left her loves. This is her people over here. She left her men she left her entire life to be committed to her mother-in-law. Well, Boaz understood this commitment and thought the commitment was absolutely amazing. And I tell you, he looked at her very good in his own eyes, thinking this, is, this person is a strong, strong character. Well, little did we know, this is God's hand working, is that Boaz was related to Naomi. And if Boaz was related to Naomi, then what can happen? Ruth could marry her. He could be a kinsman redeemer. And I'm just going to make the story really fast. Guess what took place? They got married. Love story took place right there in the middle of Judges. And as they got married, I will tell you what the last verse is in the book of Ruth. Ruth 4, 13 says this. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. Then he went into her 
and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The woman said to Naomi, Praise be to God our Lord, who this day has not left you without kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout all Israel. He will, be rena- he will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons, has given birth to this kid. Well, who's the kid? Ruth 4, 16. Then Naomi took the child, laid him in her lap, and cared for him. The woman living there, Naomi, has a son, and they named him Obed. Isn't that good? Obed, he was the father of who? Jesse. Was the father of who? David, which is who? The son of the king, the son of Jesus Christ. In fact, they even called Jesus the son of David consistently when he's on earth. You see what's taking place in the dark, dark, I mean, I told you a dark, dark story. Hopefully, I should have said it's going to be rated R. Told you a dark, dark story, but in the middle of the dark, darkest story, even in the Bible, there was a plan, and where is the plan going? It's pointing right towards Jesus. And what do you see in that story? You don't see the garbage. You see a faithful God in the world that is consistently micromanaging and moving towards his bloodline of his son coming to redeem the entire world. So there's a story of Judges. Sorry I went fast, a little shaky. Hopefully you guys followed the story of Judges. But I will tell you that Judges and Ruth is connected together and Ruth brings a salvation in the hardest time that Israel had ever faced. And through that salvation is doing what? Pointing to Messiah.